Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. Ronaldo, for those of you who may not be familiar with him, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics, along with our lightning round. Our theme today, following on the heels of the election, will be as follows. Will gridlock keep Washington, D.C. stuck in neutral? Or will the U.S. economy continue to recover and grow, putting Americans back to work? What are the implications for the global economy and investors? And how can you best position yourself for the future? Our guest later on today will be Duncan Mizell. He's an organizer for 350.org, which is Bill McKibben's organization on climate change. He's going to be joining our show to discuss the Do the Math campaign, an effort to use grassroots organizing and shareholder activism to target oil and gas companies that block action on climate change. Additionally, Ronaldo and I will be discussing the Academy's recent article, Neocurrencies, Flying Buttresses Can Stabilize a Shaky Euro, which outlines a potential solution for the ongoing political and economic challenges facing the European Union. This month on our lightning round, we'll be covering a variety of topics, as always, um, and these will be on different aspects of the economy. As always, um, we introduce Ronaldo at this point and kind of give us a, a feel for what's been going on, Ronaldo. Thank you, Howard, and uh, welcome to everyone who's joining us on this program. Uh, this is, we're recording this program, and I know many of you will be getting it sometime in the next week as you choose to download the MP3 file. But today, as we sit here, it's the second Thursday in November, two days after the famous U.S. election. And um, I'm going to make a couple of comments about that election in the broadest sense uh, that will benefit, I hope, the listeners in the United States as well as those who've uh, increasingly begun listening to this program in uh, jurisdictions abroad in, in Europe and elsewhere. Basically, um, the stock market fell yesterday by 345 po- uh, points in the Dow in, in, in the United States. Initially, uh, people's reaction to that was, gee, it must be because Romney didn't win. Uh, and Wall Street had a very big... Uh, stake, which, of course, as we all know, a huge stake. Uh, Wall Street firms overwhelmingly, and very wealthy billionaires, overwhelmingly supported Romney, and people with small contributions overwhelmingly supported the, uh, the current president, Barack Obama. Uh, by the way, a funny little thing, um, just to the sidelight, um, every year in China, well, every 10 years they change the leadership in China, and every year in our embassy in Beijing, the United States puts a little ballot box uh, so that on the election day they throw a party and they invite the Chinese uh, contingent uh, that interacts with our embassy in Beijing to come by for a little party at the embassy and to cast their ballot for who they'd like to see as president. And um, everybody gets a ballot, not just the Americans, but the Chinese as well. And apparently Barack Obama won that as well. Why is that significant? And why is it that most, in fact, all of the European people with whom I'm in communication and even many Israelis uh, have told me they're enormously relieved over Barack Obama's victory. Well, there's many reasons for it, um, and I'm going to tie them to what concerns each segment of the globe briefly, and I'm going to touch very, very lightly on Europe because we're going to have a segment later in the show on Europe and the Euro because as of this morning, the new fear button that's being pushed, in addition to the fiscal cliff, in addition to the fact Romney didn't win, and now the new one is, oh, my God, the euro's never been fixed. That's going to be a crisis as well. So we'll come back to the euro in a later portion of the show. Let's start with why 
the stock market is completely wrong in their verdict yesterday at 345 points down. Ronaldo, before you jump into that, I just want to make one quick comment that differs yesterday's drop from anything that happened in 2008. In 2008, we saw a complete panic where people sold everything, even those things that were not at risk because they were in total fear. Yesterday, we saw not only a drop in the stock market, but most of those assets actually went into fixed income instruments, bonds and so forth, and those actually went up. And so if you were in either a balanced type of account structure as an individual or a fixed income structure, you actually made money yesterday. And that's distinctly different than what happened in 2008. I agree. And and, and let's also add one more caveat, Howard, which is that both you and I know that the Dow Jones Industrial Index, which is made up of 30 very large companies, is not representative of the U.S. economy. And it's certainly not representative of the global economy. And if I were to pick an index that was more clearly representative, I'd pick the S&P 500. So the Dow, though, but what the Dow is, is the Dow is what reporters report on because it's the easiest thing for people to recall and find. And so it's become a, a, a way for people to gauge the psychology, theoretically, of the market. And what I want people to know is I'm going to remind folks, I've been telling people to get out of the market now for about 10 months. And I said, sit on your cash because it's too close to call and this thing could go either way. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to make an announcement. I don't like to recommend people buy public company stocks or not. But I do like to recommend when it's safe to get back in the market. And I want to say, I want to go on record today that the drop yesterday of 345 creates a buying opportunity on U.S. equities, meaning the Dow Jones is not reflecting what the economic condition of the United States of America will be six, nine, and 12 months from today. And that's the purpose of the Dow. So it's off. Now, in addition to the point that Howard made, which is the smart money in the market, had already hedged by going into bonds, et cetera. And by the way, as Howard knows, I did that. So I made money yesterday on Obama's election. I'm delighted I did because it's the right way to make money. But at the end of the day, what I really want people to know is not to get caught up in the, in, 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 in the gamesmanship of the market. What I want to do is to point out that what the Dow is reflecting is not the reality of the economy. What's the reality of the economy? Well, the reality of the economy is we just crossed over 2% GDP growth two weeks ago, up from one5 Now, if you do the math, folks, that means we've lifted the U.S. economy by 33% in just the last four months. That's an enormous uptick. By the way, that's an uptick in a country that's the only country today uh, of any consequence size that is continuing to grow faster than it did in the prior one-year period. Even China, which I think is perfectly safe, and all these people worry about what will happen to China. Don't worry about China. It's still going to do a 7% GDP this year. But it's not doing 8, and it's down from where it was a year ago. So the and, and, of course, Europe is not only going down, it's not even going sideways anymore with the exception of Germany. So what we're saying is the financial engine that everybody's hoping and praying will continue to produce and, get, and grow is the United States, and we've already achieved a break across the 2% GDP annualized growth level. That's huge. Now, in addition, I want to make a prediction, which I've said in the past, but I want to underscore it. I've said in the past that I thought that we, by June of next year, I started saying this about two, three months ago. If Obama gets reelected, the Democrats hold the Senate, we will be at 2.5% GDP growth annualized, which is another 25% increase in the entire U.S. economy within six months, okay, by June, meaning that's the speed at which we will be growing. Now, I, I will explain why very briefly why that's going to happen. So the fact that Romney didn't get elected is a phenomenal piece of good news 
because it means, and you've already heard a telegraph this morning from the Republicans, they're willing to see the tax structure changed. We must change this tax structure in the United States. We've been trying to get along by spending too little on each other, and in the process we have bridges that are collapsing, roads that we can't drive on, schools that are, that have, are overcrowded, the safety net that's been demolished. So we must now take and reinvest some of the excess that we will savings we will have from having shut down the Iraq war and soon the savings in 2014 we'll get from the end of the Afghanistan war. We got to start doing some nation building in the nation called the United States of America because if we put the nation building there, it will continue to grow the economy in the US stronger and that will give Europe what it needs, which is more time to solve its fundamental problem on the euro. Again, I'm not going to talk about the euro until later in the show because that has been said as of today to be the problem, so I want to say what we think is the solution. But the euro needs time. They're working on a very complex fiscal dilemma between Greece, Spain, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Ireland, and the other countries in the euro region. And that complex solution required more time and it requires a little bit better market condition. In other words, as the U.S. economy grows and provides more trading capacity to Europe, the pressure on the European economy will get lessened. In fact, I believe this one single change in the U.S. economy will keep Germany from having to dip, double dip. If that alone happens, it would be significant. In addition, as the American economy grows, it encourages the Chinese to free more of their capital to also participate in the global economy because they see it rising. Last but not least, by almost every conservative estimate I've seen, American corporations here and abroad are sitting on somewhere over $1.6 trillion in cash. That's an enormous amount of cash, and companies can't sit on that kind of cash if they think the economy is coming back. What you're going to see over the next 30 days is consensus in the American business community that the economy in the U.S. is not only going to continue to rise, but it will start to accelerate that rise over the next six months. Uh, the only hook, the only question mark over this entire thing is, of course, the fiscal cliff conversation. And in all my prior predictions, which so far, knock on wood, have proven to be correct, I've always said the fiscal cliff was the big issue. If you, if you assume that will get solved, then we'll be at 2.5% or better growth rate by June of 2000 by 2013. Well, I've also said to you, I think the fiscal cliff problem will be solved. And the reason I think that is because there's, even before the election, the president had way more ammunition in his camp than the Republicans have in theirs. And what the election made clear is that the U.S. electorate doesn't want people who are making the top 1 or 2%, who are making well over a quarter million dollars a year or more, to continue to be paying less tax literally less tax than they paid in the Clinton years, where everybody prospered. So we're going to go back to the 39, we're currently at 36%, 39% for the top bracket. And I can assure you, nobody I know in the top 1% or 2% bracket, including myself, will change their lifestyle one iota when my tax goes from 36 to 39. People like me need to be paying more. In addition to that, however, since we're not going to change our lifestyle, the amount of liquidity that will offer to the economy so we can now accelerate the growth job in the U.S. is going to lead to a much stronger economy in 2013. Another thing we pointed out in passing in um, Twitter, but now we're going to put it out as a statement from the Academy, I believe that by January of next year, as terrible as Hurricane Sandy was, it will lead to a significant increase in construction in the East Coast, 
which will further cement the growth of construction nationwide and will further push employment up in that sector. So we've got a lot of factors now pointing in a positive direction. Why is the market going sideways or down? I think the reason is an awful lot of the people who control markets are people who spent, in this last election, three, four billion dollars trying to buy a result and ending up with no, with no benefit. In other words, the game that was played was unlimited money unleashed because of the Citizens United Committee like a decision. The Citizens United decision in the United States unleashed a torrent of capital from hidden sources, most of which we still haven't figured out. And the people who, have at, who control that capital got real disappointed when they woke up and found out that not one of the major offices of the United States Senate and not the presidency, which was their target, were affected by the money. In fact, that the U.S. Senate is more democratic today than it was three days ago has got to be a terrible, terrible statement about the return on investment that all that capital got. Interesting statistic. I saw one uh, yesterday. The Democratic uh, uh, Congressional Campaign Committee collected over $100 million. The average contribution was $35. Over 90% of the contributions were $50 or less, meaning they were able to tap an enormous wellspring of small donors who believed that their economic future rested in keeping the Democratic Senate and in getting Obama reelected. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what happened. Now, to the rest of people in the world who are not as familiar as we are with this here in this part of the country, the demographic change that occurred in the United States between 2008 and 2014 has been significant. And not only did Hispanics, for example, which is soon to be the largest voting bloc in the United States, not only did they turn out this year, they turned out in higher percentage numbers than they did the last time Barack Obama won, four years ago. Blacks turned out at an all-time high percentage. And, of course, Asians, who went from 2 to 3% of the population, also turned out in all-time high percentages. Blacks, Browns, and Asians overwhelmingly voted for uh, Obama. The only category that those two categories Romney carried, white people, substantially, uh, of which I am one, and um, not, although I did not, uh, I'm not saying I voted for Romney, I'm just saying that my, I'm a Caucasian. So those of us who are Caucasians, and like me, we are 65, many of us, we are the retiring face of American politics. And because the United States has been such an incredible attractor of other nations, of other religions, of other sociological groups, we, the United States of America, are no longer going to be a white country. That was clear going into this election. It was mishandled by the Republicans, and clearly they're going to, they're going to recalibrate because that, those, those numbers are going to be even larger four years from today. This is a great thing to know if you live anywhere else in the world because it means that the United States will continue to be a microcosm of the future. It will look and report and act like the world, and that's the place it needs to play as one of many equals on a, a global stage where the U.S. is not going to be allowed to be the bully and doesn't want to be the bully where the U.S. will lead and support, but will not attempt to enslave or dictate or demand. It's a Ronaldo, great day for the United States, a great day for the world. It's actually a great segue to our guest, uh, Duncan Mizell. Uh, Duncan, as we mentioned earlier at the top of the show, is an organizer for 350.org, which is a uh, climate change organization uh, founded by Bill McKibben, uh, who many of you know. And at this point, I'm going to cue in Duncan. Uh, are you there, Duncan? I'm right here. Thank you. 
Good, good. Uh, we're going to turn it over to you for a moment and to tell us a little bit about 350.org uh, for those who may not be familiar, and also tell us a little bit about what the work Bill's doing, and most especially to tell us about the Do the Math campaign that you're currently involved in. And I gather you're actually on the road right now, literally. Yeah, uh, I'm on the road in between Seattle and Portland right now. Um, but the, first, to tell you a little bit about 350.org, um, we're an international campaign against climate change. Uh, it was founded in about three, four, four, four or five years ago. Um, uh, one of the folks who founded it is Bill McKibben, as you mentioned, who's an author and activist. He wrote one of the first books for a general audience about climate change uh, way back in 1988 called The End of Nature. Uh, since then, he's been doing a lot of work uh, organizing, making sure the planet wakes up to the threat of climate change. Um, 350 uh, really got its legs under it. Um, in 2009, um, you know, with the Copenhagen Climate Conference, there was an international day of action that 350 organized that uh, had 5,000, over 5,000 actions in 181 countries. CNN called it the largest and most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. Uh, pardon me. And then uh, since then, uh, we've held big work day parties around the world where people get to work on climate change projects in their communities. Uh, and last year, uh, we... Uh, sort of spearheaded a campaign to stop the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, which was eventually, or at least temporarily, rejected by President Obama. We're pretty excited to get back into that fight now that the election's over. So um, that's a little bit about 350.org. Um, right now we're on tour across the country, as you mentioned, um, with the Do the Math Tour, asking uh, in particular students and people who are connected to endowments uh, to work on investing their endowments from fossil fuel corporations, and there's a whole to do about why that's important to be taking on right now, which I, I hope we can get into later. Yeah, and, and just for a second, uh, thanks, Duncan, for that summary. I am I, because um, I I know that um, that 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 the tour is incredibly important and do the math. But before we do, for some of our listeners, um, and I hope if you haven't familiarized yourself, most of you probably have with the work of Bill McKibben. That's spelled M little C capital K I B B E N. Uh, I really urge you to take a look at his book, Earth, spelled E-A-A-R-T-H, or another phenomenal book he did called Deep Economy. And, 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 and when you look at either one of those, I think what you're going to get is a sense of the nature of how thoughtful Bill McKibben as an individual is. And these victories that he's talking about that came about this from global organizing are an offshoot of Bill's environmental commitment. And one of the questions, because uh, I know Bill's been a very thoughtful observer of both the politics of environmental change as well as the, as well as the economics and the and 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 and, and the and the basically the sociology of it all. I'm curious, um, what do you see, Duncan? What does Bill see as the post-Obama going into second administration, post-election, second administration of Obama? What are the environmental opportunities there, as opposed, apart from the campaign we're going to talk about in a minute? Well, the, the first and most straightforward thing the president could do is reject the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. Um, NASA's top scientist, Dr. James Hansen, says that mining the tar sands that the pipeline would carry would mean essentially game over for the climate. And that's a direct quote. Um, that's something that the president has uh, full authority to do, to handle. It's on his plate. Um, and it would keep an enormous amount of carbon underneath the ground, an enormous amount. The tar sands are the world's largest industrial project, and the Keystone XL pipeline is the most important piece of the project. It's the Keystone, uh, which would allow them to export that oil overseas um, and, re and boost their production by 
almost 800,000 barrels of oil a day. And by the way, uh, let's just, let's get, and, and Bill, uh, Duncan, let me just jump in and, and let's connect some dots for people. Just so folks understand, what's really at stake here is the Canadians want to move an enormous volume of oil through the Keystone Pipeline to the refineries that the Americans operate. So the American yeah. refinery industry is really in this up to their eyeballs because they see an enormous gusher, literally, of profits from taking that Canadian oil and then exporting it off the, not, yeah. a, not into the U.S., out to China and beyond. So, so what's really going on is an enormous financial play that's going to net tens of billions of dollars of profits at a minimum, if it goes through, for the largest oil companies and their refineries in America. Isn't that true? That's exactly right. Um, and there's a, there's a good argument to be made that it would raise gas prices. And, you know, I, we need to use less gas and higher gas prices aren't the end of the world necessarily, but that's the real implication here. It's a play. They want to get the oil out of Canada, out of the United States, and overseas. And by the way, they want to get it all approved while natural gas prices are at an all-time low. And uh, we've covered on this show in the past, Bill, that we believe that fracking is going to be stopped in a number of states. It's already stopped in New Hampshire. It's on moratorium in New York, and I'll bet it gets stopped there. And as fracking gets more closely looked at in the next six months to a year, we believe fracking may be uh, reduced dramatically. And if it is, that will tend to raise the price of natural gas. And what people don't realize is we use a ton of natural gas to get the oil out of the tar sands. Yep, it's, uh, that's one of the ways that it's actually, when I said it's the biggest industrial project on planet Earth, that's the one of the ways, the sort of octopus that seeks into our backyards, the tracking wells, um, and then the whole operation itself in Canada is just a monster, it's a monstrosity, really. Uh, and that natural gas goes, they superheat a water and chemical cocktail, and they, they don't even mine, they don't drill the oil, they mine it. They pick it up in great big scoops, and they blast that, that muck with the oil, with the, the hot water and chemical mess, and it separates out this very, very dirty oil uh, from the from the ground, from the dirt there, and that's how the tar sands get to be. It's why it's so energy intensive and why it's so dangerous for the climate. When I say they're going to, you know, have 800,000 barrels a day of oil exported through Keystone Pipeline, that's two barrels of water for every barrel of oil that is polluted by this process, uh, and it's a 30 to 40 percent higher carbon footprint per barrel as well. Uh, so, you know, it's bad enough to have 800,000 barrels of any kind of oil, but tar sands oil uh, is, has an, an enormous impact on the environment and on the climate. And I want to throw in one other statistic for our listeners, and that is just in case you're wondering whether some of that oil is going to come to benefit the United States if the XL pipeline goes in, everyone listening should know that the United States is currently a net exporter of refined oil products, meaning every yeah. drop of additional refined oil will, in fact, go offshore. So there's not a drop of benefit to the United States. Uh, to, to our credit, the United States is using less oil every single day. Our cars are more efficient, our homes are more efficient, and, and that's important progress. And Keystone XL is a, a serious step backwards, and it, it should really be a no-brainer for the president. This is yeah, something and, that's and, on his plate. And it's a back step purely for craven economic interest. I just like to tie that through together. In other words, the only people that are going to win on this deal are a very, very small group of very large oil companies and refiners who are already – you should forgive the excess expression, sucking deeply at the public tip. And yeah. it, that's all who benefits from this. So there's no benefit to the American public. You could make the argument that the Canadian public benefits because they're selling this, this, this valuable oil. And, and, but, I mean, if you saw what the tar sands has done to the pristine areas of Canada and, the, and these bogs that stretch for miles, and these, and these lakes of polluted water that God knows how many years it's going to take to that ever be uh, percolate through, you would say, gee, Canada, 
you understand you are selling your birthright for a bowl full of porridge to your brother Esau. Think about it, Jacob. Uh, yeah, and right. that's that's the first thing that we think the president should do. It and you know he sort of took a took some steps towards being that leader that we had hoped for in 2008 at his acceptance speech. He said that we didn't want to pass on a planet that is uh, to our children that is burdened by the terrible threats of you know a, a, a warming planet. I forgot the exact phrasing, but um, you know he's I think he gets it. And uh, the real question is whether or not he can have the political muscle. And I think what we learned over the last four years is that. Um, you know, we can't take it easy even on the politicians we'd like. You know, if we want this change to happen, it's got to come from us. And so uh, we're going to take some leadership, and we hope that the president takes some leadership in making sure that polluters start to pay for this massive environmental catastrophe that the Earth is undergoing right now. That's the bottom line. Duncan, I'm sorry, as we start to wind down your segment here, are there any specific action steps that uh, people can take um, or related to the tour that might be useful for our audience to know about? Well, tell us where the tour is now and where it's going and how they can find out more about it. Absolutely. So uh, right now I'm on tour across the entire United States. We're going to 21 cities uh, between now and December 3rd. Uh, It's called the Do the Math Tour, and the math refers to sort of the remaining carbon mass, how much carbon we can still burn and hopefully still have shot in the livable future. Um, so the website is math.350.org. I'm going down the West Coast right now. We'll be in the Bay Area. We'll be in Portland tonight, uh, the Bay Area for the next two nights after that, and then Los Angeles, uh, and then down the East Coast into the Midwest following there. Um, the thing that we're trying to do with this tour uh, is we want to start to get colleges and universities uh, and pension funds and, and other folks who are connected to wealth to divest from the fossil fuel industry. You know, we have universities that say they're in the business of creating a better future for their students. They can't be investing in the corporations that are responsible for destroying that future. The math is really simple. Yeah, and by the way, let me let me just give people a, 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 bit, a brief statement. 350.org uh, is the, the numerals, 350.org. And the reason for that number, and Duncan hasn't mentioned but it, that's the number of parts per million of CO2 above which – we all believe the Earth is in terrible, imminent peril, and of which it appears Hurricane Sandy is one great reminder. Uh, and we are way above that. I personally believe we're at about 400 ppm at this point, Duncan. I know what your calculations are. But 350 is what we want to get back down to at a maximum, and that's where that name came from. The tour Duncan's referring to, Do the Math U.S. Tour, which started, uh, I guess, yesterday, November 7th, and goes to December 3rd, and as he said, is right now on the west coast of the United States. So go to the site, either go to 350.org or to MAP, right? What's, this, what's the site for the tour itself? Uh, MAP.350.org. MAP, M-A-T-H, dot 350.org. And if you go there, you'll see the dates when that tour is going to be in your community, uh, Bill, by the way, McKibben is an extremely stimulating, fun speaker. You're, you, you'll be glad if you go out to hear it. I'm looking at the map of the tour right now, and I'm seeing uh, L.A. on the 11th. I'm seeing, uh, see, I'm seeing uh, Vermont. Uh, I'm seeing Maine. I'm seeing Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, Durham, Atlanta, Columbus, Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Omaha, Boulder, and Salt Lake City. So if you're in any one of those towns, go to math, M-A-T-H, dot 350, dot org. Look at when the tours come to your town. Do yourself a favor. Go listen to Bill McKibben. He's a fabulous speaker. And get engaged in what Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Nobel laureate, said 
is the great next moral issue that we face as a planet. We have to ask the companies to do, do to put the public interest above their own financial interest, just as we did with apartheid in South Africa. Desmond Tutu, an honorable man, urging you to go. Yes, Duncan, yes. I'd, I'd like to thank you both for coming on the show today and also for the work that you're doing. I think it's an incredibly important task. Um, and we encourage all of our listeners and participants to uh, check out the websites, either 350.org or math.350.org for the tour specifically itself, or go to Bill McKibben's own website as well. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate the chance to talk to you all. And, Duncan, okay, let's, let's let Bill McKibben know how much support he has out here in the hustings all around the, around the country and around the planet. All right. Again. I'll pass on the word. We're very grateful. Thank you, Duncan, Thank once you. again. Okay. At this time, it's we swing into what is known as our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights, comments, and comments rather on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. And Ronaldo, I'd actually like to kick this one off by mentioning uh, one of my favorite topics, and I think uh, Duncan was heavily involved, invested in this one as well, which is oil and the price of oil. I have for a long time been stating that oil tends to be used as a political weapon and that its price has very little to do with its actual um, supply and demand. And that if you notice, last spring we had talked about how the economy was beginning to recover and just at that same time oil suddenly spiked up at around $110 a barrel. And I had said even back then that the price of oil always tends to be down on election day uh, every two years because the oil industry in general never seems to want oil to be an election year issue. And sure enough, on election day, the price of oil was just around $85 a barrel, a 25% drop over the six months period of time, most of which took place in the last uh, six weeks before the election happened. We'd actually thought it might get as low as 90. It just kept going down to 85. And I think one of the indicators you sh we need to watch as this political discussion about the fiscal cliff and the recovering potential for recovering economy goes on, is that price of oil. Uh, if it jacks up very suddenly, uh, I think that's an indication, Ronaldo, that we're going to see a big fight, political fight, about uh, the future of the world economies. Uh, and if it stays down, I think that's an indication that uh, there's going to be a little bit more discussion. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that, first of all, I think uh, kudos to you again, Howard, for once again correctly predicting the price of oil on Election Day. <laughs> You've done that now about six years in a row. Uh, but I, I think that... Actually, um, this is a history that goes back almost 35, 40 years since the first nationalization took place in the Middle East of uh, the oil companies. No, no, but I'm saying you personally, for at least six years that I've been listening, have been predicting it correctly to me. So I'm acknowledging that and well, congratulating you. you for digging out the research and uh, pointing it out to people. Um Look, I think that the the bigger envelope here on oil is simply this. If anybody who is on the planet today that doesn't understand the most powerful economic interests on the planet are the major fossil fuel companies. That they run the planetary fuel system, they are extracting unconscionable, and I use that word deliberately, unconscionable profits. And and, and when I say unconscionable profits, that's after they've given themselves fleets of jet aircraft expense accounts that would make a king blush, um, uh, a, a variety of perks that you can't even begin to contemplate as a normal person, even after all of that largesse to themselves and, and fatuous overhead, they're still producing on the bottom line profits that are so high you have to call into question the legitimacy of the system that would allow such profits to accumulate. 
And Ron, so, let's add that in the last election cycle, a lot of those billions of dollars, and we mean literally billions of dollars. So we mean tens of billions. Tens of billions <laughs> came from the oil industry to try to control, manipulate, and distort um, the American well, elections. Yeah, so, so there's no question there, this is a big business proposition. So what I would like to urge people to do, it is in your economic self-interest. I want to congratulate Bill um, Duncan from the Bill McKibben's organization, Duncan, who we just spoke to, said this in passing. I just want to highlight it. American consumption of refined oil products has been dropping. In fact, I believe the total amount of consumption of oil in the U.S. this year over last is probably down by 6 or 7%. And that's because we drove less. <coughs> we bought smarter cars. We retired, retired gas guzzlers and clunkers, and we're on our way to an increasingly more efficient oil future. But the success of where we are going relies ultimately on taking the power away from the oil companies to determine our our fuel future. And I want to just point out that if you don't do that, and the longer it takes to do that, we will pay the price of endless numbers of Sandys over and over and over again. The planet has a fever it's brought on by fossil fuels. We are clearly at 450 parts per million or higher, and that is destroying the planet. In fact, we're going to come back at the end of this. In fact, actually, we're going to, yeah, we'll come back at the end of this with a, with a suggestion on some climate change things. But, but basically, you've seen what happened with Sandy. And, 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 it, and we've been saying on this show for years now, every low-lying major urban area in the world, that would include New York, Washington, Baltimore, Beijing, I mean, I go on and on. Every, it's 70% of the global population is in imminent jeopardy that a Sandy has happened and will happen with greater rapidity. I was so glad that Governor Cuomo had the strength of character to say that repeatedly in the last two weeks. Folks, we better get used to it. Get over it. I'm glad that the Bloomberg Business Week, which if you don't know, folks, is one of the major publications in business globally, Bloomberg Business Week, founded by Mike Bloomberg, carried on its cover right after Sandy hit in big black type on a red-faced background. It's climate change stupid, meaning there is no time left for discussion about climate change. It's here, it's real, and look what it just did to New York and New Jersey, and we still have 1.4 million people without power back there, and another storm just hit yesterday. So what I'm saying to you folks is get used to the fact that it's, it's going to be storms that are going to swamp New York repeatedly and Baltimore and Washington. It's going to be hurricanes that are going to decimate Florida. It's going to be tornadoes like you wouldn't believe in the Midwest. It's going to be more fires on the West than you can possibly believe. All that's going to keep happening at an accelerated pace unless we do something about climate change. So that Bloomberg Business Week, so I see a, 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 what's, what's emerging is a consensus from the business community, which Mike Bloomberg represents, from the Democrats, Cuomo's articulation, and even now from the more dominated by Republican business community and ultimately by the Republican Party, I believe, are, are going to have to accept that people are not willing to live in caves, which is the only alternative if we don't get climate change under control. By the way, in Clay, caves pretty high up the hill. So I urge all of us to think about that issue. Now, in context with that, what are some of the opportunities in the marketplace with your money as we go through this terribly difficult cycle? Well, about six months ago, we told you the market was going to be bottoming out for housing. Uh, then we started predicting that it had bottomed out. Two months ago, we told you it was on the way up. And I'm delighted to report, that Howard, this morning the Wall Street Journal ran a major story. Home prices up 7.6% from a year ago 
biggest jump since 2006. Now, that's single-family residence. So you're talking about people beginning to recover their home value. That would be great if you didn't live in Staten Island. This is how I tie these things together. Now, so if you, if you live on Staten Island or if you live on the shoreline of New Jersey, don't think that was a once-in-a-lifetime event, as Governor Cuomo has warned you. It's going to happen repeatedly unless we get our hands on climate change. So as I'm witness that, they ordered evacuations yet again uh, for the coastal areas because of the second northeaster uh, that was storming through New York That's and New right. Jersey. That's right. And it's a good thing they did because the, the waves were pretty high. So, and, and that was nothing compared to what's coming. So what I'm saying is in terms of the lightning round, home prices are up and will continue up. I said earlier in the show, household residential construction will get a big boost because of Sandy in the first quarter of next year. Uh, they're going to have to have some thawing and that sort of thing. You're going to see uh, companies like Lowe's and Home Depot are going to continue to be uh, beneficiaries of this because people are going to have to buy more and more plywood to board up for the storm. They're going to be buying more and more materials to rebuild after the storm. So at the end of the day, Sandy's actually going to add some muscle to the U.S. recovery. There's well, we actually have a fair do- amount of research that's been done over the years uh, related to different disasters. And I know for a fact that after uh, Katrina in New Orleans, the U.S. economy actually got a boost, an economic stimulus, from the rebuilding effort that went on there. Yeah, uh, and I, thing. it's going to happen again. Yeah. You can count on it. I mean, just, you know, what does it take to open the Lincoln Tunnel? Think about it. And how much money is going to get spent doing it. And no one's going to say, we don't want government to do that. Notice how everybody stopped blaming big government when they wanted FEMA to help. So I think, and by the way, I, I think that's that we demand that of government is the least that we should demand. Is right. take care of our own problems. Anything else you want to mention on gold? Yeah. Uh, uh, equity, gold, so I forth? think, um, you know, I've been holding gold and saying I'm neutral. It can go up with as much reason as it goes down. If I had a bias today, my bias would be on the downside. Uh, I don't see things available today that will tend to push the price of gold up higher. And I see a number of things that could, could tend to reduce it. Con- conversely, I don't think the floor is going to drop out of gold. And if you want to keep a little gold in your portfolio to feel safe at night, by all means, do so. But at this point in time, I definitely would not recommend buying gold. If you got it, you can hold it. If you want to liquidate and take some profit, be my guest to liquidate. Um, the other things that I see that we should talk about is commercial uh, real estate. Uh, I'm believing the uptick on that is going to happen by the end of the first quarter next year. So I look for some improvement there. So now the buying opportunities between now and, say, February probably. Um, any other categories um, like copper? Well, we already mentioned just earlier that uh, fixed income, for example, went up when equities went down, although that tends to be a far less volatile area and the chance of sort of, quote-unquote, making profits are far far less than on the equity side. But uh, that's Yeah, and I think the bond market, yeah, U.S. Treasuries and the bond market generally long bond, uh, probably stable for the next month. Don't see anything that's going to cause it right. to do one thing or the other. And, of course, what everybody's going to be watching for is, what kind of a compromise gets reached to avoid the fiscal cliff. And by the way, if the fiscal cliff happens, you've heard reports that as much as 9% of GDP could be destroyed. Um, I think that's a little uh, draconian. I don't think it'll be that bad. But I think, yeah, I think we could have ourselves a recession because we could easily get a five-point drop. And if you're only growing at 2 2.5%, five-point negative will take you into a drop. But I think that that is less likely to happen for a variety of reasons. And I think if the Republicans put their feet in the ground and are willing to let the economy go south because they don't want to tax the top 2%, I think the revenge at the polls in two years will be mind-numbingly bad. Right. Although it is two years to the next election, and uh, 
memories are short. So I think we need to watch exactly what the strategies play out over the next few weeks and uh, and stay closely attuned to that. But I think, Ronaldo, we need to move on to our last major topic, which is the uh, the topic you've written about recently, the neo-currencies. Yeah, let me, and, I'd lo- let's do that. Before I do, let me just issue a call to action. I just thought about this today. We haven't done this before, Howard. I mean, just want to try something out here. Everybody in the United States, and frankly, I don't care if you live in Europe, but everybody in the United States at a minimum listening to this show, I would like you, this is a request I'm making, I would like I just, you to... I just want to mention quickly, our readership, viewership rather, I should say, listenership, uh, has passed the 7,000 mark, which as a small show like ours, is a pretty phenomenal number. So there's yeah, a lot of you out there, and we encourage you to take the step that Renal is about to discuss. Yeah, and, and please tell your friends about it, because the show has been doubling almost every month, and we it's because you're telling your friends and people are signing up to take this program for free. And please keep telling them, because we hope to have more impact on, on what's happening on the planet. But uh, the request I was going to make, and this is the first time I've ever done this, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to call Harry Reid, the majority leader of the United States Senate. Whether you live in America or not, if you live in America, all the better. I'm going to give you his number in a second. And the reason I want you to call him is because of this fact. Every two years when the Senate reconvenes for what's called a congressional session, every time they do it, the Senate has to, like the House, adopt its rules of operation. And one of the rules that caused this Senate to be tied up for the last two to four years in a horrific way so that it could not do the people's business was the filibuster rule. Now, the filibuster rule is not something that came out of any statute. It's not in the Constitution. It's a accommodation that senators make for each other on the theory that it will help make better legislation. I want you to call Harry Reid and say to him, Harry Reid, if you're going to let somebody filibuster a bill, meaning stop it while they're talking, force them to take the floor of the Senate and explain why they're holding up the people's business. And don't let them get off. If they get off the floor, if they stop talking, then the vote is taken. Don't let one senator have the same veto power over legislation as the United States president. That was never envisioned by the Constitution. It isn't constitutional. And it's something that infringes on the, on the authority of the executive. So what we Renato, should do, Renato, just to clarify for our listeners, what is the filibuster rule right now? How, does it, how can one senator stop action? Okay. The I don't filibuster, think most people know that. The filibuster rule, and it only changed this a few years ago, because if you remember the movie that uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington starring Jimmy Stewart, he had to take to the floor of the Senate and keep talking while the American public showed its support for what he was saying. And if he had to stop talking, they would have taken the vote and, and Mr. Smith would have lost. lost. So the idea is to force them to keep talking so the American public focuses on what it is they're objecting to. Right now, the filibuster rule got changed a couple of years back, where if one senator says, I filibuster, that's it. They don't even have to talk. It's just a send a notice to the clerk, and that's the end the bill can't be voted on which gives every United States senator the power to stop every piece of legislation. That's more power than the president gets. So at this point in time, the filibuster rule is completely out of whack. And what I want people to do is call Harry Reid. His number is area code 202-224-3542. He and the Democratic constituency, have his Democratic members of the Senate, have the authority to pass a filibuster rule that says for the next session of Congress, if you want a filibuster, you have to take to the floor of the Senate and keep talking, because when you stop talking, we're going to vote. No Let senator will ever be number. allowed to the Yeah, please. I'm, I'm, it's area code 202-224-3542. And if you press the number one, it'll direct you to a staff member. If you press the number two, once you connect, 
it will be to Senator Harry Reid's voicemail. Uh, either way you do it, the more people who call in, the more people convey that message, perhaps the stronger that message will be heard. And if you want to tell them the World Business Academy sent you, be my guest. You don't have to. It's fine with me, but just call. I, I, I will be calling Senator Reid's office. We already called him this morning to tell him we were going to do this, by the way, Howard, just before we went on the air. And I'll be calling right after the show to say that we did do it, and I will be articulating, uh, I'm going to press 2 and leave a voicemail for Harry Reid, precisely what I think needs to change and why. But the bottom line is, get a filibuster rule that requires the senator who wants to filibuster to take the floor of the Senate and explain why. And when he stops talking, that's it, then you take a vote. You can't give every senator the right to block every piece of legislation in perpetuity, because that means nothing can pass the Senate without a two-thirds vote, because it takes two-thirds to cut off a filibuster. Now, that rule, two-thirds, was never enshrined in the Constitution. It was never envisioned remotely by the Founding Fathers. The idea that it would take more than 51% of the Senate to pass a rule, to pass a law, is un-American. It's antithetical to the Constitution. And it happened because of old barons in the Senate who wanted to give themselves more power. It's time to take that power back, because if we don't, they'll tie the Senate up. And you won't get movement on climate change. You won't get a result of the fiscal cliff. You won't get um, an extension of the debt ceiling in a proper frame of mind, in a proper time frame. So it's for your own economic interest, listeners. You must get to Harry Reid. Call him. Area code 202-224-3542. Harry Reid, Senate Majority Leader, United States Senate. And if you're overseas, tell him that the whole world's watching, because, in fact, I think they are. Thanks for that, Harry, uh, for that uh, Harry Reid comment, uh, uh, and, and I'm now ready to talk about euros. Okay, so let's, you had written an article recently called Neo Currencies, Flying Buttresses Can Stabilize a Shaky Euro. Do you want to explain what that concept was? It's a somewhat unique and, and interesting idea. Um, so please, go ahead, Ronaldo, yeah. share this with our okay. listeners. Uh, I think uh, yeah, some of our listeners know that on May 31st of this year, uh, we cooperated in a book that was put out by um, one of our fellows, Bernard Letier. I was fortunate to ask, uh, to, I wrote a letter at the front of that book, uh, which was done at the request of the Club of Rome, which is the leading group of professors in Europe. And that book contained nine separate possible solutions to the Euro crisis. And it was presented to the European Union leadership May 31st of this year in Brussels. Um, and I'm very, very pleased to say that the book was very, very well received. In there are a number of ideas, and one of them I extracted and, 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 and expanded on which Bernard and I have been talking about, was this idea that you, you, you want to create something that will support the, the, the euro without having to replace it if the political leadership of Europe is unwilling to consider replacing the euro. Now, you could say they're right or wrong in doing that. I'm not even going there. I'm saying if you, if you take as an assumption that the political leadership won't get rid of the euro, the 17 countries that have the monetary union, then you have to fix the fact that the euro is a currency, as a monetary instrument to which there is no fiscal authority attached. So an economy only works if you have fiscal and monetary policy. When you only have one, monetary, that means you can create uh, a complete chaos, as has happened now in Europe, because you have to set the taxing authority to raise the revenue equal to the number of monetary instruments, in this case euros, you want to issue. Now, what we suggested was, if you're going to make the assumption that the euro is not going away, one way to solve the crisis would literally be to let every country of Europe and the 17 countries that are in the union, monetary union, remember there's 27 countries in the economic union, but 
each have common borders, uh, common trade policies, common uh, passports, etc. But if you want to solve the economic problem at the heart of the 17 countries that also have this common instrument called the euro, think of an old medieval cathedral. I want you to picture that in your mind. An old medieval cathedral had a gorgeous central nave, the main part of the cathedral, and it was very, very tall, and it was usually held up by very few columns. And it, and it created this giant open space that was, that was built with basically 14th, 15th, and 16th century technology. How did they do it? Well, they realized the only way you could have that big, giant uh, open space that high on the inside was if you put these things on the outside called flying buttresses. And what they are is basically a support mechanism that pushes in on the central nave, so thereby holding it up so it can't collapse. So these are external support systems. So if you think of Notre Dame de Paris, de Paris you will, you will, you know, you, you'll, you'll see those buttresses. You'll see them pushing the cathedral from the sides, and they had gargoyles on them. We believe that a neo-currency, meaning a currency like the prior currency but not the same. So in the case of the Greeks, it would be a neo-drachma. In the case of the Spanish, it would be a neo-peseta. In the case of the Italians, it would be a neo-lira, etc. That every country in Europe of the 17 that has the common euro needs to provide some way for that economy to lower the demands of its monetary system and, 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 and sometimes um, it's sort of a deleveraging. So sometimes when you do this, you, you are able then to reestablish your economy at a lower level because it was unsustainable at the higher level. So, for example, if all of the Greeks in Greece could trade with each other in neo-drachmas at whatever price the neo-drachma was worth that day, no one outside of Greece sets that price. It's however many drachmas you can get that day for a euro at the bank. If you allow them to do this, and you allow them to pay their taxes in neo-drachma to the Greek government, so there's a legitimacy to this currency, this neo-drachma could allow for the air that's already built into the Greek economy to slowly come out of the balloon. Let me give you an example. Without changing the euro structure, so all the accounts in, in, in Greece that are euro-denominated, all the euros on investment in Greek banks, all the contracts that are signed that stipulate euros have to be paid for them, those all stay in place. There's no, there's no attempt to, to change that. However, the Greek government then creates this new currency called drachmas, neo-drachmas, which can be used within the country's border itself, cannot be used for anything outside the border, has no legitimacy beyond the borders of Greece. And you allow the Greek banks every day to determine what a drachma, neo-drachma is worth versus a euro, because you've got euro bank accounts, and you'll have neo-drachma coming in to be exchanged. Now, once you've, once you've exchanged, you say, okay, how many, how many euros can I get for 10 neo-drachmas today? Bank will say you get eight today, or you get, you get six, you get three. And that'll change every day. In other words, it'll fluctuate as the value of the neo-drachma rises or falls with the economy, with the economy of Greece. And why is this important? And then and I, what I'd love to do is, have people send me questions after you've read the article, Neocurrencies, Flying Buttresses Can Stabilize the Shaky Euro, which you can get a copy of on our website. So just go to the worldbusiness.org website, take a look at the article, and then send me some questions. I'd love to answer them. And if but you'd what, like to send questions in, let me just mention for our listeners, the email address for the Academy is info at worldbusiness.org. Again, info at worldbusiness.org. We'd love to get your questions. 
and we do also try, when we have questions coming in, we do try to answer those on our next show. Yeah, and I'm happy to do that. And, and so the key concept I want to leave you with is the concept of the word, which we should have probably done as um, our financial um, uh, exercise today, Howard. But the word is devaluation. And what does it mean? It means when a currency's value is stated at a level higher than the currency is worth, it is essential that that country devalue or it won't be able to get as much trade. Its products will be too highly priced to be competitive. Its labor will be too highly priced to be competitive. So you have to devalue your currency if, in fact, your economy is operating at a lower level than the currency you're running. Well, that's precisely the problem with the euro. But because the euro is a multi-nation currency, no single currency, Greece, no single country like Greece or Spain, is allowed to devalue. They can't devalue the euro because that's set by a central European authority. So the, the, the only thing they can do is to muddle on as their economy gets further and further out of whack. If they're not part of the euro, what every country in the world has done since the beginning of fiat currencies, and again, I'm not saying fiat currencies are a good thing. I'm just saying since we got them, how are we going to manage them better? So fiat currencies, like the ones you're familiar with of every country, which is the I promise to pay you currencies, a fiat currency has to be able to be devalued by the country whose economy is falling or that economy doesn't get competitive again. So let's finish up my example. Let's say that today um, it will cost me uh, five euros to buy a kilo of olives. But tomorrow, with neodrachmas issued, I can do it with two or three neodrachmas. Well, all of a sudden, more of us can buy olives, right? Because they're cheaper. I don't want you to be able to sell those olives to a Frenchman across the border because that's not fair to him. But it is fair within the country of Greece to do that. Now, what are the two benefits that instantly happen when you do this? First benefit, the price of everything in Greece start, drops to the appropriate lower level. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, I've got to tell you, the Greek economy is, at, uh, is operating at twice the level it should be. You would expect to see deflation of at least 50% overnight in Greece if this were to happen. But that means every single thing a Greek buys from another Greek is 50% cheaper, which means more Greeks will be buying from more Greeks, thereby building the Greek economy stronger. And eventually, if it keeps getting stronger and stronger over time, it will get to the point where it can rejoin the and, and, and be fully on parity with the euro. Second thing that will happen, listen to this, how crazy this is. If you're a small business in Germany with the exact identical product line, the exact identical financial situation, as a same company in Greece, you can get a loan at a bank for probably two and a half, three and a half points or more below that loan's cost to the Greek. Meaning, because you live in Germany, you're, first of all, you have bank debt available. Greece, they have almost none. They will have it if neodrachmas are created. But they have no way to borrow money at anything close to what the Germans pay, which means that their economy gets further and further depressed. So if every small business in Greece is paying a 2 3 4% premium for debt that they when they can get it. That puts a huge burden on the economy to keep shrinking. And that ends instantly if you develop a neodrachma. So two benefits. One, economy of Greece goes up because now Greeks can afford to buy from other Greeks at fair Greek prices, not at German prices. And you get start getting fair bank debt for Greek companies to rebuild. Eventually, the Greek economy then cleans itself up, gets back up to the point where it's at parity, and at some point, you'd expect to see a neo-drachma trade one-to-one -one for the euro. But it will take many, many years, probably decades. And in the meantime, nobody will be going through austerity because right now, austerity is what's killing everybody. 
You can never cut your way to prosperity, as we've said on this many times on the show. So that's what the, the subject of a neo-currencies are. It sounds like it's complex, and it can be a little bit, and I know it's not, be, not everyone's cup of tea, but the reason we wanted to raise it with you and why we wrote the article is, and the article came out, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, October, I mean, maybe, gosh, a month ago, October 9th it came out. We could see coming this crisis of the euro and how it would be blamed around the globe for greater instability and ultimately financial collapse. And as I said at the beginning of the show, just an hour before we went on the air, I was hearing a commentator say that the reason the stock market's down again today is because fear of the euro crisis. So if you think this stuff doesn't matter, it does. It matters a great deal at every level of the U.S. economy. And I'd urge you all, there's a letter that I've written that explains why. It's a one-page letter. It's at the very front of the executive summary of our book, um, Money and Sustainability, of the book we've cooperated on, uh, that explains why everybody is involved in this euro crisis. And there is a solution. Smart people know that. What we need now is the political will to create that solution. Thank you, Arnaldo. And we're almost ready to wrap up the show, but before we do that, I just want to mention one little political cartoon that just popped up on my email, which I think is almost appropriate given the elections. And it's a picture of two Mayan scholars looking at the Mayan calendar. And one scholar says, so how come it was supposed to end in 2012? And the other one answers, we thought Romney would win. (laughs) On that note, Ronaldo. I think that's pretty funny. Uh, You know, uh, I'm going to add one more to that. I I want people to start looking, and and hopefully we'll get some questions in in the next show. Um, I want them to start looking at what's going on around them. This election was a wake-up call for a political chance to change your outcome. I really want to encourage people, and when I talk about subjects like the Euro, that may be very difficult for people to follow. One of the reasons I do it is if you're going to figure it out anywhere, this is the place we have to try and explain it. But I want you to think about global currencies. I want you to think about why it is that some people say we should or should not go back to the gold standard. I want you to think about why is it that Brazil is such a financial success and they're no smarter than we are? Uh, why is it the Chinese have cut from 9%, 10% growth back to 7% and why that's probably a good thing? Why is it that the economy is going to go from 2 to 2.5% and was as low as 1.5% just a couple of months ago? I, I want you to start thinking about these questions because the good news, ladies and gentlemen, is that I have never heard about, seen, or read of a problem anywhere on the planet including global population, we can't solve with today's technology and resources. What's missing is the will to do so. And what I want to urge all of our listeners is start getting into that frame of mind. And don't I'm not asking you to stretch past your comfort zone, but I'm asking you to start paying attention to a lot of different stuff that I look at every day and I know is important to what will happen in people's lives. It's what will make you less financially well-off or better off financially. It's what will create or destroy your job security. It will leave you in a comfortable place vis-a-vis what's happening to the planet versus a very fearful place. Okay, What's coming is predictable and in many cases has been predicted. Our job is to open our eyes, look around with a new sense of awareness of how much we can do to control and help ourselves and how our own destiny is really about what we make in a way of our choices. You know, that Desmond Tutu quote about the great next moral crisis is to look at climate change in the face and realize we did this. 
it is our obligation to fix it, just like it's our obligation to deal with the fact that we're running out of water for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people on this planet. That's not acceptable. We're increasingly running out of food for literally a billion people on this planet. That's not acceptable. We can fix those things. We must fix those things. And as it was once said, you know, I can't do everything, but I can do something, and by the grace of God, what I can do, I will do. And that includes holding oil companies accountable. It includes taking care of your children, grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces, whoever you care about that's under the age of 25. I want you to look at everybody you care about that's under the age of 25 and say, you know what, I better step up to the bat and start doing a better job of collectively running this planet or what these people will have to live with when I'm gone is totally horrific. So I call upon you as, a, as, as your duty to yourselves and to humanity, please go out and get the information, stay active, let's make sure that we have more things to celebrate like Obama's election yesterday, two days ago, and let's rebuild the planet. Thanks very much for everybody for taking the time today. Really grateful that I had the opportunity to share these thoughts. Thank you, Ronaldo. And let me give you a few little reminders before we sign off for today. Uh, first, our next live call will be December 13th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Again, that's the second Thursday of the month. It will also mark the end of our third year of uh, doing these calls. And if you want to find any of the previous calls, all you need to do is go into the worldbusiness.org website. Again, worldbusiness.org. Um, and check out the Blog Talk Radio uh, link that's right there on the first page. If you want to send us an email, uh, it's info at worldbusiness.org. And if you want to follow on uh, Bill McKibben's tour, that address is math.350.org. His climate change site is, again, the number 350.org, 350.org. Um, and we hope you'll check out these sites. We hope also, too, if you want to call Senator Harry Reid, one more time, that number is area code 202-224-3542, and you're asking if he would be willing to change, or asking him to change the filibuster rule, requiring people to actually speak and be there on the podium when they do it. And with that, I'd like to sign off and thank you all for tuning in and paying attention. Again, we're really happy to get your emails and your letters, so please be in touch. With that, Ronaldo, thank you, and uh, goodbye.